Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Last week, we started a series looking at all the Nevi'im, and uh, those of you who were not here, and those of you who were, we did the, we covered the prophet Yeshayahu, the prophet Isaiah. And we looked at some of the historical background behind what it is that Isaiah is talking about. That talk, of course, as I said at the time, was not a replacement for reading the book, a book, a project that everyone should do at some point in their life, is sit down and read through the book of Yeshayahu. But it kind of facilitates the reading by enabling us to go into the time frame and into the headspace and look at the challenges and the world and what was going on and therefore to understand something of the amazingly radical revolution that the Nevi'im of Am Yisrael were actually able to do, that the prophets of Israel have effected. Now, I, I can only make some reference to that because I can't go over all of that material. I wanted to build on it for when we look at the Navi we're going to look at tonight, which is the next big daddy prophet of the prophetic tradition. We have quite a few Nevi'im, quite a few prophets mentioned in Tanakh, but they're all bunched around these three big daddy prophets that you all have heard of, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Tonight we're looking at the Navi Yirmiyahu. And it's a very, very different picture. And it's a very different prophet, a different person, a different challenge. In fact, what I want to get to the core of tonight, because as you can imagine, it's not the first time I've kind of thought about Sefer Yirmiyahu. But every time I reread it, I get a deeper insight and there's something at the core that I want to get to the heart of. And I can do it with you because we did Yeshayahu last week and why it is why it is that the word of God that comes to the prophet Yirmiyahu is saying something that on the surface appears to be the exact opposite of what Yeshayahu was told to say. That is in the geopolitical framework and that's where we're going to start because we have to understand these prophets in their context. And I know that some of you have heard me say this before ad nauseum, but if you Read Tanakh, you must understand it in its historical context. The, Nav- the Nevi'im, all of the prophets of Israel, have a twofold message. One is for their own generation, and one is what we call Le Dorot. It's for all eternity, and it speaks directly to us. But in order to understand what it's saying to us, and even to understand what he's saying to his own generation, we must look at the historical context. So that's what I'm going to start with. And if you recall, I also need to say something else. I need to say something else before we start. Look, I know, I know that today's Jewish world is a sensitive place. I know that. I'm not a complete idiot and I travel around a lot and I speak to a lot of people. So I'm going to say some things tonight that might be a little controversial or confronting for some people. And I'll say this right now so that people who are scandalized can run out and save themselves the trouble of being offended later on. But it is easier in today's Jewish world 
to stand up in a modern Orthodox congregation, and I have seen this with my own eyes, it is easier to stand up in a modern Orthodox congregation and say, I am gay. I'm a man. I am religious. I'm from. But I have sexual proclivities towards men. That's my gender sexual preference choice. It is... I'm not saying that, by the way. I'm just... <laughs> that's a, if it is easier for a man to stand up in an Orthodox congregation today than it is to stand up and say, I am left-wing in my political thinking. I believe that the Israeli occupation of Palestine is wrong. Now make no mistake, if you can't handle that, then you're not going to handle Jeremiah. Because we have no greater left-wing thinker in the whole of Jewish history than the prophet we're about to talk about. But it may not be left-wing in the sense that you are thinking or that you might get when you read the letters to the AJN. I do need to go into some historical context because he must confront you. Jeremiah must confront you. He's a really difficult figure, a difficult prophet, a man of tremendous conflict. He is a man who was given a message by God to his generation and was told from the start, they will not listen to you. You will spend all your life fighting and being beaten up and threatened and imprisoned because everybody will tell you you are wrong and everybody will tell you that you are undermining the morale of society. And everybody will tell you to just go away and disappear. But you must keep, you must keep the word of God alive for this generation. Now, what generation is that? Once again, this is a timeline. Anybody remember what we did? Let's see who remembers from last week. When, if I said to you, roughly when, in secular counting, when is the prophet Yeshayahu? When is he living? Approx. Come on, come on, come on, come on. I'll remind you. Well, certainly it's during the first temple, right? Okay, so the first thing we need to know is that the period of the first temple, the, what we call the first Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem, is here. Approximately between minus 1,000 and minus 500. What we did last week was we zoomed in here in fact, what I'm going to do with the zoom in, because otherwise we'll, we'll lose the board, and I want to keep the timeline on. So we'll draw it just, just up here, but I'm zooming in on that period, and in fact I'm going to zoom in really on just basically a 200-year period for tonight's talk. I'm going to call this minus 750. I'm going to call this minus 550. All right? And I'll call this minus 650. So we can call that minus 700. And we can call this minus 600. Everybody follow? That's going to be our roughly our bit. Now, bear in mind, bear in mind, when I think, oh, what do these numbers mean to me? How does that embedded in world history? It's all very well to talk about Jewish history. Yes, we've been around for a long time. Continuous narrative. But where am I in world history? all of the great spiritual revolutions that are going to affect the world globally round about at the same time for reasons that people are not sure why that happened but we suddenly all around the same time 
We see the golden age of philosophy in Greece, the Buddha in India, Zoroaster in Iran, Confucius in China. All of these thought revolutions are happening here. So the massive spiritual revolution of the Jewish people is happening in this couple of centuries preceding. And make no mistake, it is a massive revolution. Fundamentally, in the very concept of God. Now, we need to spend five minutes just setting the historical background for the prophet Yirmiyahu. Because Yirmiyahu is sitting around here. He's like almost a century later. And what's happened in that century? It's a bit like watching Game of Thrones and missing about five seasons. And then you come and you say, okay, so where are they now? Like, who's on the throne? Like, what's going on? Hezekiah is here, one of the most righteous, one of only three or four unbelievably righteous, incredible kings that we had in the whole of the First Temple period. Probably the greatest Judean king to have sat on the throne of Judah since David. Hezekiah was an amazing king. And what is constantly the question of generations, poured over by scholars and sages and psychologists, is this. How is it that amazingly great people often have really, really crap children. <laughs> vice, versa. vice versa is also true. Vice versa is also true, as we will see. Because as great as Hezekiah was, and you remember that Midrash that I cited last week, where Hezekiah didn't want to marry because he had this premonition that he was going to have yucky children, and the prophet Isaiah convinced him to get married by marrying Isaiah's daughter because he says, you know, you, your son, you're a righteous king, your son, I'm a prophet, I'm Isaiah, right? With my daughter, you know, they, they've got a good chance of actually being someone half decent. Amazingly, Hezekiah's son, who came to the throne in probably round about, well, we know, Hezekiah uh, uh, got another 15 years after the whole Sancherib thing. So we're talking about around the mid minus 780s. Comes to the throne a king, the son of Hezekiah, King Menashe. Very good. Men I don't mean that patronizingly, I mean very good. <laughs> Menashe. And amazingly, Menashe rules over Judah longer than just about any other king in the whole history of Judah, something like five decades. But he is awful. Awful. I mean, even the kings, even the kings that were a bit dodgy prior to Hezekiah, such as Hezekiah's own father, Ahaz, and other kings prior, even they would have at least paid some sort of open lip service in public forums to what was supposed to be happening with the kings of Judah. But Menashe was the first real king to say, first king to really say, I intend to be an awful oriental despot. I'm going to introduce into Judah whatever suits my purpose, religiously, economically, culturally. I don't care. I'm on the throne. This is the way I'm doing it. And the way I'm doing it is this. I'm not like my father. I'm going to stay on this throne and I'm going to do it because I'm going to be completely subservient to Assyria. I'm not just going to pay them tribute and taxes. 
I'm going to get really involved and I'm going to be Assyria's greatest ally. I will go every year and I'll bow myself down at the Assyrians if I have to. For this period, the land of Israel is externally stable because we live as a, almost a vassalship of Assyria. But internally, Menashe is wiping out all opposition. One of the, I mean, the rabbis tell us, the sages and scholars tell us, they fill Jerusalem with blood. One of the reasons we don't have any prophets from this entire period, except one, and that's the prophet Nahum, who predicts the downfall of Assyria, is because Menashe just wiped out any opposition. And you can imagine the sort of person that he was, not different from some world leaders today, but that was, he was supposed to be a king of Judah. When Menashe dies in the minus late 630s, he's succeeded by, actually no, in the 630s, he's succeeded by his son. And his son was Ammon. And King Ammon was on the throne for two years and he was so awful. He was like his dad on crack. <laughs> he was, so, he, he burnt he had burnt every single scroll of the Torah that could be found he had burnt. He said, I know how to anger God. That he and his father had developed this kind of syncretism, this kind of polytheistic syncretism where the temple of Jerus in Jerusalem, the temple to the God of Israel still stood, but it was just another religion among, alongside all the other awful cults and idolatrous practices that were going on in Jerusalem and around the Temple Mount. So it's kind of worse than getting rid of Judaism. It's like, yeah, Judaism is just another thing going on here. But Ammon was assassinated after two years. He was so bad. And then his eight-year-old son comes to the throne. And his eight-year-old son, his eight-year-old son is a very, very interesting character. Because his eight-year-old son comes to the throne and he doesn't know much. There's no Torah scrolls to learn from. All he knows is what his grandfather did as king. I'm a king. That's what kings do. They walk around being bastards. That's what I do. And his dad, so he comes to the throne. And then at around the time of his bar mitzvah, they didn't have bar mitzvahs then. That's a much more recent invention. But at around that time, this young man called... Yoshiyahu, who we know as Josiah, suddenly has this kind of epiphanal realization and says, I actually want to be an authentic king of Judah. I know that my ancestors had a very solemn and sacred covenant with God, a very solemn purpose. And that the people of Israel have a purpose in the world. I want to facilitate that. I want, and I also know, I've read, I've read the chronicles of the kings of Israel. I want to be one of those kings that did the right thing. And those around him said, okay. But we're not entirely sure what to do. So Josiah says, well, I do know one thing. We're not entirely sure of all of the details of what was in the Torah. But we do know one thing. We know that God doesn't like idols. So Josiah begins what we now refer to as the Josianic Reformation. That went on for 
a decade, next decade and a half, they, the entire kind of resources of the government of Judah were devoted to the elimination and destruction of all places of idol worship right throughout the land. So extensive was it that they even dug up the bones of priests and burnt them on their own altars to defile them. They finally destroyed the two golden calves that were at Dan and Bet-El that had been set up by Yeroboam I back in the 10th century when they even started the northern kingdom. That was so extensive, he even went to the northern kingdom and got rid of the earth. He got rid of all the Bamot, all the high places, all the different kind of ooga-booga that had been going on for so long. They went right through. Now, as part of that, Josiah also attempts to centralize all of the worship of the people of Israel, particularly its sacrificial and ritual worship in Jerusalem. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. There were problems with the Josianic Reformation. One of the problems with the Josianic Reformation was that just as the people had kind of got used to being dictated their religion to from on high. You know, right throughout the decades of Menashe and Ammon's rule, it was, now we are Assyrian, now we take on the religion of Ashur. And remember, Ashur was the name of the empire, the name of the city, the name of the god. We're taking that on. Now it's, oh no, we're not doing Ashur, now we're doing the god of Israel. The rabbis have some very cute midrashim on the Josianic revolution to indicate this, as they would, because Josiah actually sent inspectors into people's homes to look for idols. And they would say that when the inspectors came in, they would open the doors, they would look in the house, but the idols were on the backs of the doors. So when they closed the doors, the idols came together again. A kind of a, a, a quip from the rabbis on what really was the problem with this Josianic revolution. It was a top to bottom. It wasn't a grassroots reformation. But nevertheless, it was very thorough. And then, as part of this restoration of the religion of Israel, of Judaism, they start repairing the temple. As you do. And so they, you know, build a wall here, knock down a wall here, do a bit of this, bit of that. The temple had kind of been in ruins. Now it's the only spiritual edifice on the, on the temple mount. Let's fix it up. Let's make it nice. We're going to have like 200,000 people coming for Pesach next year. You know, it's going to, we need, we need to fix this up. And as they fix it, they open up one little crack in the wall and they find in that crack in the wall a Torah scroll. But they're not even sure if this is the Torah. There are obviously a lot of discussions on what exactly they found. Even your Fressing Apikursim will tell you that what the Josianic Revolution may have found was in fact the, just the Book of Devarim, which effectively, Book of Deuteronomy, which effectively became the constitution of the whole of the Josianic monarchy. But whatever it was, they weren't sure, and they took it to, well, not just were they not sure, but the very first, when as soon as they open it, the very first verse that Josiah's eyes fall upon. What is the first verse his eyes fall upon? The first Torah scroll discovered in kind of 60 years. And they open it up and his eyes fall on Deuteronomy 28, 36. 
God will drive out your king into exile to a land that you and your fathers have not known. So imagine being the king, imagine being Josiah, imagine living in this kind of proto-messianic frenzy all over the place, right? Because, I mean, he's thinking, I'm the dude. We're now kind of introducing what's meant to happen. And suddenly he sees this in the very first Torah scroll. He's a bit freaked, more than a bit freaked. And he sends the Torah scroll for verification to the spiritual leader of the age, to ask the spiritual leader of the age, is this the Torah? Question number one. And question number two, is that really going to happen? Because all of the things that the Torah says would lead to that happening, the exile of the king, they've been happening. And who's the spiritual leader of the age? Mm. The spiritual leader of the age is a woman, of course. <laughs> it's the prophetess Huldah. And Huldah says to them, tell the man who sent you, that's why she's called Huldah. Tell the man who sent you, meaning King Josiah, yes, that's the Torah. And secondly, yes, that's going to happen. But because you are a righteous king and you have humbled yourself before God, Josiah, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. And Josiah goes, cool. This is a very, very strange response from Josiah. He goes, oh, so it's going to happen, but not for me. Okay, no worries. Now, it's during the Josianic reign. We're not entirely sure exactly where in his reform it happens. But a young man from a priestly family that is based in a village about six k's from Yerushalayim called Anatot. You can still go there today. It's an area they know was Ana, the ancient Anatot. And not every priest in Judah was involved necessarily in the temple services. You could be of a priestly lineage, but you weren't necessarily functioning as a priest. And it would appear that this young man was never really functioning as a Kohen, as a priest, but he is connected with this priestly family in Anatot. But he's a very, very earnest young man, and suddenly he gets the word of God. Unlike Isaiah from last week, from Isaiah from last week, unlike Yeshayahu who we looked at last week, where basically Yeshayahu sees this enormous vision and God's going, who are we going to send? And Yeshayahu says, pick me. But Yirmiyahu, Beterem Yitzarticha Yidaticha. God says to Yirmiyahu, there's no choice in this matter. I knew you before I even formed you, that you were the prophet for this generation. But it's going to be tough. They are not going to listen. And this is in the middle of the Josianic revolution. Well, not revolution, reformation. The people have completely lost their understanding of the nature of their existence in this land and their purpose in history and the world as the Jewish people. Because they think it's a religion. Because they think it's a religion with rituals and sacrifices. They think it's about being from. The priests are not saying, where is God? No one's asking where God is in all this. But even more devastatingly, the Torah, 
What about the spiritual leaders of this generation? They have not known me because they think it's about ritual and sacrifice and I never wanted that, says God. I wanted tzedek ubishpat and chesed. I wanted righteousness. I wanted justice. I wanted kindness. Go and tell them. But, but, as we learned last week from Yeshayahu, one of the big, 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 not perhaps even the greatest idea to come out of the whole of the prophetic radical revolution of Israel is the concept of Teshuvah, a concept that we take for granted now, but which is radical in its implication. Shuvu banim shovavim. All of these quotes that I'm giving you just now from Yirmiyahu. Return, delinquent children. If you do Teshuvah, it's all going to be okay. But if you do not, where, where is that love? You know what I feel like, says God? You know what I feel is a big influence on uh, Yirmiyahu from the prophet Hosea, who'd been in the northern kingdom like way back here. You know what I feel like, says God? I feel like one of those dudes who marries a woman and loves her and they have a wonderful relationship and then she goes and has a series of affairs. And then she comes back and then she says, okay, husband, I'll be a good wife now. I'll do what you say. That's not what I want, says God. I don't want you to do what I say because you're just being obedient. I want you to love me, says God, the way I loved you. Like the days when you chased after me in the desert when I brought you out from Egypt. In the times in past, and this is, you know, already 2600, 2700 years ago, but times past, says God, when you ran to me, when you loved me, when we had a genuine relationship. A lot of the metaphors of relationships that we see in Hosea, we see in Yirmiyahu. So the first six chapters of Yirmiyahu are really, if we have to date them anyway, and they're not easy to date, it's a very, very complex book, Yirmiyahu. It's 52 chapters. It's the longest of the Nevi'im. Although Yeshayahu has got 66 chapters, the chapters are shorter. Yirmiyahu is very long, and each of those chapters is placed in a different historical context. So I'm, what I'm saying now is an overview. But the first six chapters, roughly, of, of Yirmiyahu deal with that struggling with why Yoshiyahu's reformation is not going to work. Even though Yoshiyahu ostensibly is a good guy. Now, we just have to zoom out for a second to world events. Because without world events, we're lost. Very, very big thing happens in 612. Minus 612. You see, right through... Here... Back in the 8th century, the Assyrians had been going, just growing, expanding, crushing everything in the path, great leaders. And then once they reached their height, they kind of, you know, dominated the Middle East and that whole area for a while, a few decades. But then like all great empires, they started to decline and started to erode from within. We know all this. We know a lot about Assyrian history. Because one of the greatest kings of this entire era is, of course, Ashurbanipal. 
Ashurbanipal is a king who was never meant to be king. Famously, he was a crown prince. Well, he, was the, he wasn't the crown prince, he was a prince. But when his brother died, he was appointed to be king. But he was a very unusual king because during the time that he'd been a prince, not expecting to become king, they had unusually taught him to read. So he could read. He was a king who could read. He was a kind of strange beast in the ancient world. But because he loved reading, he assembled thousands and thousands of tablets and books and therefore zoom fast forward in our time machine to the 19th century and British and German and French archaeologists are crawling all over the Middle East and they discover the library of Ashurbanipal 30,000 cuneiform tablets that's why we know so much about this and why, and I mentioned this last week, so people should not think that when they're reading the Tanakh, they're reading cartoons or comic books, is because it is impossible until the 20th century to have known the things that the Tanakh tells you. Do you understand? No one could have come along at a later date than here and gone, you know what, I think I'm going to invent the history of Assyria and stick Israel in there so it looks good. We are dealing here with an absolute record. The Bible, the Tanakh, Sefer Melachim and Sefer Yirmiyahu and Sefer Yoshiyahu are one of the key textual documents used in ancient world studies to match up with, and of course, the Assyrian and subsequently Babylonian accounts. But in 612, what had been happening with Assyria, you see, as, we, as we'll... <laughs> as we'll see very, very powerfully next week in the prophet Yechezkel. Only God raises nations. Only God brings nations down. The whole of the Middle East is really a struggle between the Assyrians and the Egyptians. They're holding the balance of power. They're actually in alliance now. But there's another nation right next to Assyria, also in the whole Sumerian delta there, in the Tigris and the Euphrates, subservient to Assyria for a long time, but finally break free and develop their own national identity and their own growth and eventually outgrow the Assyrians and eventually throw off the Assyrians and overtake them and subsume them. And in 612, Nineveh, Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, is ransacked and conquered effectively ending almost the power of the whole of Syrian Empire by the big new power, which is, of course, Babel, Babylon. And in 612, so then, the remnants of the Assyrian Empire, and I know that people are sitting there going, yeah, but what's this got to do with the prophet Jeremiah? It's very important. They move to Haram, and the Babylonians are coming against them again, because the Babylonians want to finish off that's like stabbing a cat several times the death of the Assyrian Empire went in several stages it's oh don't worry it's all over within a few short years but in 609 the Babylonians are on the march again and they got mates with them and they're heading towards the Assyrians in Haram meanwhile Egypt Neho the second Egypt 25th dynasty of the Middle Kingdom Nahor fancies himself as a bit of a potential superstar in the whole of Middle East geopolitics. 
Remember, they're not reading the book of Tanakh 2,600 years later. They don't know how it's going to end. So for all Nechonos, when he leaves Egypt with his army to take on the Babylonians in defense of the Assyrians, he's going to be setting himself up as the man. And he comes out, and he obviously, the quickest way to Haram, which is here in southern Turkey, the quickest way is to go straight through the land of Israel, not just the land of Israel, but march through the Jezreel Valley. And we all know that in order to get through the Jezreel Valley, if you're coming up from the south, there's a pass you've got to go through, and that pass is at Megiddo. Now, Yoshiahu, obviously, by now, this is 609, so Yoshiahu is already deep into his whole Josianic Reformation, I'm basically the Messiah, this is how it's happening. And he's already had the Torah a few years, so now he's pretty from. And he knows, he knows that if things are the way they're supposed to be, then we should see the fulfillment of the verse, that no sword shall pass through your land. Now, Josiah is also aided in this thought by the very important fact that for at least 10 years now, in the whole degradation and erosion of the Assyrian Empire, he's basically been independent. So we have four levels of Israel in the land. This is, I'm, I'm just digressing now so we can understand the mechanics of this. We have four levels. The highest level of Israel in the land is not subservient to anyone and at peace. That is the highest level to which the Jewish people can attain. The second level, not subservient to anyone, but at war. That is probably our generation. Then we have subser in the land of Israel, but subservient. That is Menashe and Ammon and the beginning of the reign of Josiah. And then the fourth one is Israel not in the land, but in exile. So Josiah assumes basically he's living at the highest level. And so he's not going to handle Nehoz's army marching through. So he takes out the whole of the Judean army and meets him at Megiddo. And Nehoz goes, what is your problem? I don't actually have any issue with you, Josiah. I'm on my way to fight the Babylonians. And Haram, and I think that's in everyone's interest, don't you? And Josiah goes, I don't care. I don't care. You're not passing. And there's a shtickle battle going on there. And basically, Nahor told his 300 frontline archers to all concentrate their fire on the Judean king. And within minutes, <coughs> Josiah is just smashed with 300 bolts into his body and he's dead. His body is brought back to Yerushalayim in tremendous solemnity and has a devastating effect on the whole of Judean culture, as you can imagine. This leader who represented the Reformation and Josiah, not, just, not, not to mention the fact that... The, I mean, it, it's not like Nechor conquered the land of Israel at that point because he was on his way to Haram. He didn't defeat any cities, he just killed the king and moved on. And so they placed on the throne Yoshiao's son. I'll be very impressed. Anyone? 
one of the most unheard of kings, but one of the most interestingly important kings for a certain reason, I'll explain in a second, placed on his son in 609, Yehoahaz. When Nahor has finished playing geopolitics up in Haran, an unsuccessful play, mind you, he brings his wounded tail back through here on his way back to Egypt with his army and he goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, I wonder who they put on the throne in Jerusalem. He marches into Jerusalem and he takes Jehoahaz and he says, nah, you're not going to be king, I'm in charge now, so, you know, basically you're going to be subservient to me, I'm the new big player, I don't want to get too close to the Babylonians, but I'm the new big player around here and so whether I like you or not is immaterial, you're going. And so he takes Jehoahaz to Egypt. The fulfillment of Yolech Hashem Malkacha of the whole exile of the king is fulfilled in Jehoahaz, who ruled only for three months. And so people were given a reprieve thinking, well maybe that's it. And then they place on the throne a brother of Jehoahaz. So another son of Josiah. Yeah? So I'll just write these on the board so we don't get confused. Right? Who do we cover so far? We had Menashe and Ammon. Then we had Josiah. I'm writing them in English. Yoshiyahu, of course. Right? Then we have Yehoahaz. Just for three months. And then when he's exiled by Nahor, his brother comes to the throne. Yehoiakim. Yehoiakim is a very, very different kind of person from just about anyone we've ever seen. He's seriously wicked. We believe he had the name of God tattooed on his whatnot. That's what the rabbis tell us. I'm not entirely sure why you would do that. He, he, he also, he also, and this actually is a phenomenon that you see with people that really try and do things uh, throughout various stages in Jewish history, but this is, he reversed, he had an operation to reverse his circumcision. He decided that he was going to be another bastard king, and he was just going to be an oriental despot. Because basically, look where the Josianic revolution had got his father. How? I mean, what he doesn't see is the fact that it actually got his father independence. When Israel is subservient to God, they are independent and in, they're not subservient to anyone else. When they're not subservient to the demands of God, they find themselves subservient to other nations. But he hadn't worked that out. He just thought, well, being, being a good guy didn't work for my dad, so I may as well be the bad guy. In the first year of Jehoiakim's reign, good, okay. I'll just look at the time. In the first, because we could, you know, we're up to chapter seven. <laughs> In the first year of Jehoiakim's reign, the prophet Yeremiahu really begins what we know to be the career of the prophet Jeremiah. Because he's told by God to go down to the temple and give a speech. Now, if you read one chapter from the book of Jeremiah, I'm hoping you'll read more than one chapter, but if you were to read one chapter, it's chapter 7. There are many Jewish boys in history that went down to the temple to give speeches. Some of them didn't end so well. 
And this was one of them. He gave this speech, but it almost cost him his life. Everybody's running around saying, we got the temple. We've got the temple. We've got the temple. He mocks them. Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. We have the temple. We have the territory. We have the land. We have, we're inviolable. We're bringing the sacrifices. The temple is an eternal building. God will protect us. It's not going to happen. We've got the priests. We've got the temple. There's a whole nationalistic thing going on here. No one's going to touch us here. You are wrong. You are wrong, says Yirmiyahu. If you don't believe that God will destroy this temple unless you improve your ways, improve your ways and your deeds and I will, I will enable you to reside in this place. But if not, don't think for a second that I will not destroy this temple. And if you don't believe that, go and have a look at Shiloh. Now Shiloh was where the sanctuary of God stood when they came out of Egypt. It stood for like two, three, two, three centuries it stood there. During the whole of the period, of, until David basically conquered Yerushalayim. Go and look for that now. Where is it? And indeed, if you go to Shiloh today, you go and you look at the hill where Shiloh was and there's nothing. That's a pasuk. So don't think I won't destroy this place. It's a very, very powerful speech. We'll come, we, we might come back to it in a sec because I want to move on. But, but, but it nearly cost Yirmiyahu his life. Yehoiakim, that by the way, that speech was, is referred to again in chapter 26. Yehoiakim brooks no opposition. No opposition at all. And in fact, there's contracts put out on Yirmiyahu's life. He has to go into hiding. But he's now got a faithful scribe. His faithful scribe, Baruch ben Neria. He's dictating things to Baruch ben Neriah. He's sending Baruch ben Neriah to give messages to people or speeches in the temple because Yirmiyahu was banned. And yet still, he's... So for most of Jehoiakim's reign, Yirmiyahu was a public enemy number one. There was even another prophet at the time called Uriah that we know of who was giving a similar message to, Yirm, to the one that Yirmiyahu was giving. And out of fearing for his life, he actually... Um, fled to Egypt and Jehoiakim sent, basically sent the Shabak after him to Egypt to bring him back and have him executed in the land of Israel. The opposition to these messages was incredibly fierce. I want righteous living. Amazingly, another, uh, I'm glad I remember that because it would have pained me if I hadn't. Anybody here ever go to shul? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> last week's Haftarah. What was the, sorry, last week's Parsha? Tzav, right? But it was, uh, it was a special Shabbat, right? So we didn't read the Haftarah for Tzav. What's the Haftarah normally for Tzav? We did read the Haftarah for Tzav. You see, I should go to shul. We did, we did read the Haftarah for Tzav. And what's the Haftarah for Tzav? Jeremiah chapter 7. 
And what is mind-blowing about it? And you can hassle the rabbi later on this question, but it's a big question. What is the mind-blowing thing about it? Is that it quotes, it starts with chapter 7, verse 22. You see, the parsha starts with Tzav. It's all about the sacrifices. And in, <laughs> in Yeremiah 7.22, have you got a Tanakh there? Have you got a Tanakh there? Beautiful. I'll read it to you so you don't think I'm making it up. I never commanded the people of Israel to offer me sacrifices. Reflecting, of course, using the words Ola and Zavach, reflecting, of course, his influence from Hosea. Hosea is famous here. I desire kindness, not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It is part of this massive radical transformation of the people of Israel's concept of God. God is not a neutral force that you can manipulate by rituals and prayers and sacrifices. And if it doesn't work, you say, well, I must have done it wrong. God is not that. The only possible demand that the God who created the universe and is revealed as the redeemer of the universe can make on humanity, both collectively and individually, is to act ethically towards each other and to act righteously and to build societies based on justice. And means that justice is not simply an outcome, but is built into the fabric of your society. That all people have equal access to the law. That the gap between rich and poor does not grow too wide. That there is economic equality built into the society. These are not ideas of social progressive liberalism of the late 19th and 20th centuries. These are the prophets of Israel in plain text. And that is... Only part of the message that Yirmiyahu was to give because the other thing that was torturing him, of course, was his knowledge because God told him, it's over. The Babylonians are coming. And do you know who's at the head of the Babylonian army, says God? I am. I've had enough. I've had enough. Now, in 605, just a bit of world history because this is super important. In 605, the pathetic remnants of the Assyrian Empire have moved to Karchemish, which is kind of in northern Syria today, also probably ISIS land. And the, uh, <laughs> the, the Babylonians are on their way there. The Nechor once again marches out of Egypt. Till now, basically, Jehoiakim has been a vassal of Necho. Yep, Necho put him on the throne. He's been paying him tribute. Now Necho comes through because he's going to once again help the Assyrians against the Babylonians. And the reason he thinks he's got a chance is because the great Babylonian conqueror, Nabopolassar, is basically dying and has been losing ground. So he says, now, actually, this could be my real chance. And he wants to be a player once again on the world stage. So he marches once again up here to help the Assyrians, the last of the Assyrian army at Karchemish. 
And it's true, Nabopolassar was not well. And he went back to Babylon, but he sent his son, the crown prince, Nabuchadurri-Usur, who we know is Nebuchadnezzar, at the head of an enormous army. And as ancient world scholars will tell you, there are very few battles in history as one-sided as the Battle of Karchemish. The Babylonians utterly geschmeist the remnants of the Assyrian army and the Egyptian army, the armies of Nahor that arrived, got not only, they just came along and saw and turned around and ran and the Babylonian armies ran after them and overtook them and slaughtered them. Nehoi himself barely got back to Egypt and basically Egypt never raised its head again for the next two or three hundred years. They were from Karchemish onwards, it's all Babylon. And it's Nebuchadnezzar. So, Yehoiakim's going, okay, free of Egypt, I might play independent despot again. Every time, every time the nation of Israel and the land of Israel tries to emulate another nation because they're attracted by its concept of power, it ends badly. And I'm not making this up in order to be radical. I mean, who's read the Kuzari? Do you know what I'm talking about? The rabbi knows what I'm talking about, of course. You know, right? What does Yehuda Halevi say in the Kuzari? When the, when the king challenges him and says, Oh, you know, it's all very well to say that, you know, you're right because, you know, you're the degraded nation. Well, there are, what, if you're not, what if you weren't the degraded nation? What if, what if you were actually given power? If the Jewish people were given power, would they be any better? And he says, you know what, king? I, uh, I can't really answer that. The Jewish people have never really dealt that well with power. And yet God tells us, don't emulate power. Just be righteous. Just be just. Be kind to one another. Set up a society that can contain the presence of God. And everything else will be cool. You won't have to worry about anything. That's really the surface message that Isaiah was giving Ahaz. But by the time we get to Yirmiyahu, it's too late. So Yirmiyahu's message to the kings of Judah from here onwards is... It's too late to try and be an independent king, not subservient to anyone else. That time is over. Your job is to be subservient. And your job is to pay tribute to Babylon and to not rebel. If you do that, but start acting like a mensch, then maybe God, maybe God will change his mind about destroying this place. But that's your only chance. And maybe you will survive the coming apocalypse. Obviously, Yirmiyahu is not the only prophet. The prophet Sephania is active at this time. The prophet Habakkuk. But Yirmiyahu is the big daddy of it. So much so that he walks around for a while wearing a yoke around his neck as a symbol about how the people of Israel, how the kings of Judah, should really be submitting to Babylon. But of course, Yehoiakim. What do you think Yehoiakim does? Well, in around 599, Yehoiakim thinks, you know, has anyone actually seen any Babylonians for a while? Um, and every year he's got neighboring nations coming to him, 
you know, Edom, Amon, they're all coming to him going, oh, they're having like a little mini kind of draft rebellion conference. You know, let's think about this. Let's, uh, eventually, Jehoiakim says, you know what, you're right. Let's stop paying tribute. Let's stop saluting the Babylonian flag and singing their anthem, whatever it is we do, right? Stuff them. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, I don't think so. And in 597 is a very, very important year in Jewish history. Because in 597, the Babylonian army comes to Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar comes. And of course, (laughs) they siege the city. And you know, you know, it's the ancient world. What do you do, really, if you can? If your city is being sieged by something like the entire Babylonian army, and you go, um, I don't want to die, but I know what his, I know who his problem is with. And so what you would do in the ancient world is you would throw the leader over the walls and say, it's not us, it's him. Now, archaeologists today amazing amazing i don't know how many people are familiar with some of the incredible diggings that they've done in ir david but we have jehoiakim's palace so we know the wall we can see the wall we can see the wall they threw him over and as i'm fond of saying you know we don't know whether he was dead or alive when they threw him over but he was sure dead by the time he got to the bottom (laughs) and they put on the throne Jehoiakim's son, so a grandson of Josiah. And this is the next king. See how many kings Jeremiah is. And this is a very well-known king called Jehoiachin or Jehoniah or Jehoiachin. It's different pronunciations of it. Now, Jehoiachin is on the throne for three months. He's not a particularly good king. He's in the tradition of his father, and we learn about that from things that Yeremiah says about him and other people say about him. He's famous because he was exiled. When Nebuchadnezzar finally came in, Jehoiachin, like kind of Jehoiachaz, had only, like his uncle Jehoiachaz, he'd only been on the throne for three months, and Nebuchadnezzar exiles him, but he doesn't just exile him. When Nebuchadnezzar comes in 597, minus 597, he takes the king, and he takes the whole of the royal court, And he takes all of the intelligentsia and all of the aristocracy and all of the people that basically, the administration, anyone who knew how to run a place, about 3,000 people out of Jerusalem and shifts them up to Babylon. That is the first exile. That is called the exile of Yechoniah. If you, when we opened the Megillah last week, right? We talk about Mordechai. That was the, that, and, and there are many, many great sages that were exiled with that as well. Ezekiel was exiled then. Daniel was exiled then. Uh, there are views that Daniel was exiled earlier in minus 603. So if you're familiar with that. that, that. But there was a big exile and they put on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar puts on the throne another son of Josiah. So, Jehoiachin's uncle, there you go. Obviously, I'm writing in English, so there are various ways of spelling that, but Tzidkiyahu. And those of you who are familiar with the book of Yeremiah will know. Let me see the time. I've got to make sure where are we at. Okay, we're still in the world. Okay. 
the relationship between Yirmiyahu and Tzidkiyahu is very, very complex. Very complex. Tzidkiyahu is not necessarily a bad guy. He's not necessarily a bad king. He knows his place and some views even think he would have been a great king if he hadn't been living in such extraordinary challenging times. But now subservience to Babylon is not really an option and he's got a country that is ravaged. He's, got a, he's lost vast amounts of his human resources of people that knew how to run a place and so kind of you see the very, very, very last hiccups of the Judean kingdom, a kind of, it, the place is really a mess, but still Yeremiah was going about going, you have to improve your ways or you won't survive this. And you think we've hit rock bottom, we're nowhere near rock bottom yet. Unless we somehow develop a purpose in the world, we develop a purpose for being in this place. We are not just another nation. And probably I told you that perhaps chapter 7 is the most important of the chapters, but without a doubt, I think everyone would agree that the most stunning of the prakim of the chapters of Yirmiyahu is chapter 31. When Yirmiyahu gives the nation a vision, like Yishayahu did, a vision of the return, a vision of, of what it would be like to live this authentic existence with God in the land as the Jewish people. The Jewish people are in the world for a purpose. Our history, our continuum. Yishayahu is much more explicit on what that universal purpose was, but Yirmiyahu lasers in to tell us that in order to achieve it we must start thinking of God and the people of Israel and the land of Israel in different terms. We're not just a nation there. We have a reason for being. And Tzidkiyahu is very, very complex king. Yirmiyahu is thrown in prison several times. He's beaten up again. Each time Tzidkiyahu actually has nothing personal against Yirmiyahu, it's just Yirmiyahu is accused by all the powers that be of destabilizing and demoralizing the fabric of society with his messages of saying, the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are going to wipe us out. I mean, even as late as chapter 38, when he's in prison or he's in some pit in the ground up to his neck in mud and Tzidkiyahu still asking him, what does God say? What does God say? What does God say? And Jeremiah is saying, God said to you, saying to you now, Tzidkiyahu, what he said to you the last time you asked. And that is, just be subservient to Babylon, be a nice guy, just start with those basic things, ask yourself the fundamental question of Teshuvah, and the fundamental question of Teshuvah, as I'm always saying, is every, every journey of Teshuvah begins with the question, why am I an asshole? Ask yourself that, said Kiyahu, again and again, and maybe we'll have a chance to get out of this. But of course, Tzidkiyahu, being a Judean king of that age, decides in around 589, he's been on the throne for seven, eight years, and he goes, has anyone ever actually seen any Babylonians around lately? <laughs> And of course there are reports, grossly, grossly exaggerated reports of Babylonian decline. And Sidkiyahu, based on false promises from Egypt, of, oh, 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 sorry, of course, of course. <laughs> Yirmiyahu is not the only prophet. There's lots of prophets. 
But there's an entire movement among all these other prophets. And that entire movement is... And it's not the only time we've heard this in Jewish history. Look, Yechoniah, Yechoniah, Yehoiachin, he's the real king. And he's the Messiah. And he's coming back. In two years' time, Babylon is going to be defeated. We've been told this by God. Babylon's going to be defeated and Yehoiachin's going to come back and he's going to come back with all the vessels of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar took in 597. They didn't call it 597 then, obviously. And famously, Hananiah ben Azur, this prophet, gets up and gives this, delivers this. God's spoken to me. Yehoiachin's coming back. And he's coming back in two years with all the vessels. Babylon will be defeated. And do you know what Yirmiyahu, who is standing there, do you know what he says? Do you know what he says? He says, Amen, Halavai. That'd be great. Oh, oh, I'd love that. But it's not happening. And you're a liar. And you didn't speak to God. And do you know how I know you didn't speak to God? Because look at me, says Yirmiyahu, I'm a wreck. When God speaks to me, it's fire in my bones. You think I want to be telling you this stuff? God's coming at the head of the Babylonian army. They're going to come here. They're going to destroy it. And I don't want to be telling you that. And you're a liar and you didn't speak to God. And the proof of that is the fact that you will be dead before the end of the year. You yourself, Hananiah ben Azur. And in fact, of course, that was the month of Av, and Hanani ben Azor didn't last past Tishrei. So Yirmiyahu is a tortured, tortured figure. And he's constantly, I mean, he's, read, the, read, read, the, read the chapters going through, you know, from, from, from 20 through the 30s, and you'll see this kind of, and then, and then Sidkiyahu, as I said, decides he'll have a shtickle rebellion, and they'll throw off the yoke of Babylon. And once again, Nebuchadnezzar, at the height of his power, goes, I don't think so. <laughs> just as we see, just as we see six, seven hundred years later with the Romans, just as we saw with the Greeks, just as we saw with the Persians, the land of Israel is an important piece of real estate if you're building empires. They're not just going to let it go. Nebuchadnezzar comes and he's on his way. On the eve of the destruction, because Nebuchadnezzar arrives in 587 for the famous siege of the Bet HaMikdash that will eventually, and of siege of Jerusalem that will eventually lead to the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. On the eve of that siege, on the eve of the destruction, Yirmiyahu is ma it's made known to Yirmiyahu that a field in his hometown of Anatot has become available for redemption for any family members that want to pick it up. And he organizes to purchase the field. That is nothing less than, God forbid, you know, Israel being on the verge of annihilation from some uber cracked up Iranian nuclear holocaust and you go and you buy a, an apartment in Rehovot on the eve of that 
with all the chasva shaloms in place, all right? No one needs to freak out on that. Such was the faith and the belief and the hope that Yirmiyahu had more than hope, a belief and a knowledge that the people of Israel would return to this land. And indeed, chapter 25, chapter 29, his famous, famous prophecies, one of his famous prophecies in Jewish history, that the exile in Babylon will last for 70 years. So he writes to the exiles in Babylon, the ones that had gone there before, and he tells them, you know, plant trees, build houses, get good schools for your kids, go and buy that BMW, because you are going to be there for a while. You're going to be there for 70 years, and then the Babylonians will have their comeuppance on their day, and that's another story, and the people of Israel will return to the land of Israel, but not for 70 years. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes, and of course, right up until the end, Zidkiyahu is just not seeing what he needs to see. He escapes, runs through a tunnel, gets out of there, and he's caught. And the last thing, what happens to Zidkiyahu is that Nebuchadnezzar and his generals, they take Zidkiyahu and they slaughter all his children in front of him, and then they blind him and then they take him to exile. That's a nice day for the Babylonians. But it's what you did to rebellious kings under your vassalship. You slaughtered their children and you blinded them. So Tzidkiyahu gets taken blind and bereft to Babylon to join his nephew, Yehoiachin. Meanwhile, the Babylonians turn around and they say, so the whole of the Churban and all of that is described in chapter 39, but once you get to 40 and 41, just when you thought we hit rock bottom and the temple is destroyed. And remember that the book of Echa, the book of Lamentations, is also attributed to Yirmiyahu. Interestingly enough, the fourth chapter of Echa is regarded by the rabbis as a kinah, as a lament for King Yoshiyahu's death in 609. But all of that destruction Yirmiyahu witnessed, even though he knew it was inevitable, still to see it caused him unbelievable pain and suffering. And he writes about that. The description of the Khurban is horrendous. And what happened in the city prior to the destruction. And the famine and the panic. And the whole concept of, you know, people eating their children. And just, it's, 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 it's beyond understanding. But it's still not yet finished with how pathetic things are. Because when the Babylonians come in, they free Yeremiah. They free him. He's been held captive. He's been imprisoned for Tzidkiyahu by most of this time. And they free him and they say, oh, you're the prophet that was prophesying that we're going to come in here and destroy everything. You can go free. You can go where you want. So Yeremiah decides that he will join this little commune. The Babylonians have allowed a man, a very, very nice man, called Gedalia ben Achikam, to set up a little kibbutz. And just to start, you know, with a few, few hundred families, just to start some kind of, you know, economic subsistence and just basically, basically, because even the Babylonians realize that at some point their army is going to go. So some of the local population who haven't proved too troublesome, they'll allow them to start rebuilding their economy in some form. And so they give Gedalia this opportunity, 
And so Yirmiyahu goes and he's going to spend time with Gedalia. So he's living with Gedalia. And then, of course, as we famously know, Gedalia is assassinated by some hotheads who think that even after the destruction, that aligning oneself with the Babylonians is a wrong idea. That's betrayal. And so they come and they kill Gedalia. The remaining people there, fearing that the Babylonians would seek reprisal for the assassination of Gedalia, even though they didn't do it, flee. And Jeremiah flees with them, but he says, we're going anywhere except Egypt. Whatever you do, don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. And of course, they take him to Egypt. And that is really the last that we hear of Yirmiyahu. There are some Midrashim that he came back from Egypt and in fact ended his days in Babel, in Babylon. We know that he sent the book of Yirmiyahu, such as it was in his time, to be sunk in the Euphrates River in Babylon as a sign that one day Babylon will be vanquished. But basically that is where Yirmiyahu's career ends. It is a career saturated with conflict and with suffering. He himself appears to have been quite a gentle person. But his mission was to be Ishriv Madon. In fact, in some cases, you know, a man of argument, a man of debate. In some cases, he curses the very day he was born. In fact, he wants to punish the guy that ran from his mother's labor room to his father to tell him that he was born. He's so conflicted with the role, that, which is very, by the way, obviously very reminiscent of Eov, that, that whole thing about cursing your birthday. Not as severely as Eov does it, but very reminiscent. And that Yirmiyahu is conflicted by the message he's been given by God and this generation that's just absolutely steadfastly cannot see it, cannot see what is in front of them. And what is in front of them is their resolute refusal to face up to the geopolitical reality around them in relation to who they are. The nation of Israel belongs in the land of Israel because the land of Israel is central to all of these imperial conquests we're going to see for the next thousand years till today. But unless the people of Israel realize their purpose, in other words, I'm going to end on this contentious note because you all know I'm going there, so I'll go there anyway. When we open the papers, I'll save this to the end because no more people walking out. When we open the papers and we look at all the horrendous things that are happening in relation to Jewish people in the land of Israel, I mean, which are kind of getting a little shadowed at the moment by some of the horrendous things that are happening outside the land of Israel. But none of us ever forget that life in the land of Israel is often tragically interrupted by atrocities and terrorist attacks. There's no question in my mind that the prophets of Israel would be telling us that we can spill as much ink as we want playing the victim and blaming everyone else. But we must look at ourselves because we are the Jewish people. 
Why would God call us out of exile after 2,000 years to put us through that crap? We are the Jewish people, therefore we must realize that we're on the land for a purpose. And I'm not here to give you the answer to what we're doing wrong, but we are doing something wrong. Let's just start with that. Because the message of the Nevi'im, again and again and again and again and again, if it's not going how it's meant to be, the problem is not out there, it's in you. Individually, collectively, nationally, globally. But if you effect, if you dig inside and say, what am I doing wrong? And you transform it internally and individually, then you transform it collectively, you transform it societally, you transform it nationally, you transform it globally. And then you have the great, the, the incredible concept of the Brit Hadashah that Yirmiyahu talks about. This new covenant that he will make with the Jewish people. Where people will no longer say to each other, Oh, I'm going to teach you about God. End of religion. End of... I mean, it's no wonder that Christianity had this massive kind of, you know, orgasm when it saw this concept of the new covenant because they thought, wow, that suits us perfectly. But they got it completely the wrong way. No longer will people say, I'm going to teach you about God because they will all know me. It will be a genuine relationship with righteousness and with justice that people will want to follow because they realize that in that fundamental Fabric is the ideal society that people want to live in. And may that happen speedily in our days. And I hope that I've covered most of the issues in Jeremiah. And thank you for listening to that. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.